Let's pray together. Father, we come now asking that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, stir us up to love and good deeds. Cause us to feel, Lord, a desire to draw near and hold fast and consider how we can encourage one another. And we ask this for your glory and for our everlasting joy. In the name of Christ, amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, and we'll be looking at verses 19 through 25. And this passage concludes with the exhortation, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. And as I thought about how to stir you up to love and good deeds. I, I thought about recently being at uh, Tom Scholthorpe's home on uh, Memorial Day and him reading Medal of Honor citations to us and um, the others gathered there on Memorial Day. And when I, when I Googled um, Medal of Honor citation, uh, the search automatically populated Medal of Honor citation Desmond Doss. And so maybe you've seen the movie, uh, but maybe you haven't read the citation. I think you'll be encouraged if I read this citation to you. We, we love stories of self-sacrifice. We love stories of perseverance. And this is beautiful. So Desmond Thomas Doss. I'm, I'm reading here from this um, website with all these Medal of Honor citations. Details, rank, private first class, highest rank, corporal, conflict, World War II, lists his unit, U.S. Army, citation date, April 29th to May 21st, 1945, action place, Okinawa. He was a company aid man when the 1st Battalion assaulted a jagged escarpment 400 feet high. As our troops gained the summit, a heavy concentration of art artillery, mortar, and machine gun fire crashed into them, inflicting approximately 75 casualties and driving the others back. PFC Doss refused to seek cover and remained in the fire-swept area with the many stricken, carrying them one by one to the edge of the escarpment, and there lowering them on a rope-supported litter down the face of a cliff to friendly hands. On May 2nd, he exposed himself to heavy rifle and mortar fire in rescuing a wounded man 200 yards forward of the lines on the same escarpment. And two days later, he treated four men who had been cut down while assaulting a strongly defended cave, advancing through a shower of grenades to within eight yards of enemy forces in a cave's mouth where he dressed his comrades' wounds before making four separate trips under fire to evacuate them to safety. On May 5th, he unhesitatingly braved enemy shelling and small arms fire to assist an artillery officer. He applied bandages, moved his patient to a spot 
that offered protection from small arms fire, and while artillery and mortar shells fell close by, painstakingly administered plasma. Later that day, when an American was severely wounded by fire from a cave, PFC DOS crawled to him where he had fallen 25 feet from the enemy position, rendered aid, and carried him 100 yards to safety while continually, while continually exposed to enemy fire. On May 21st, in a night attack on high ground near Shuri, he remained in exposed territory while the rest of his company took cover, fearlessly risking the chance that he would be mistaken for an infiltrating Japanese and giving aid to the injured until he was himself seriously wounded in the legs by the explosion of a grenade. Rather than call another aid man from, from cover, he cared for his own injuries and waited five hours before litter bearers reached him and started carrying him to cover. The trio was caught in an enemy tank attack and PFC DOS, seeing a more critically wounded man nearby, crawled off the litter and directed the bearers to give their first attention to the other man. Awaiting the litter, litter bearer's return, he was again struck, this time suffering a compound fracture of one arm. With magnificent fortitude, he bound a rifle stock to his shattered arm as a splint and then crawled 300 yards over rough terrain to the aid station. Through his outstanding bravery and unflinching determination in the face of desperately dangerous conditions, PFC DOS saved the lives of many soldiers. His name became a symbol throughout the 77th Infantry Division for outstanding gallantry far above and beyond the call of duty. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, we will see first in verses 19 through 21 what Christ has done for us, and then in verses 22 through 25, how we are called to respond. What needs to be revolutionized, there's a lot of talk about revolution in our, in our culture, in our context. What needs to be revolutionized is the way that we imagine approaching God. The way that we imagine maintaining the gospel. And the way that we imagine what we are doing in relating to one another. This is the real thing. This is no simulator. This is no theme park. We are talking about the living God. We are talking about heaven and hell forever. This is the task, the cause, the war, the test, the life. This is it. So in prayer, you enter the heavenly holy of holies into the very presence of God. In the gospel, you have received the sacred trust that gives the message of life. And fellow believers are the bride of Christ, which he has purchased with his own blood. So let's look together at Hebrews chapter 10, 
verses 19 through 21, and consider what he has done for us. As a kind of side note here, this opening statement, they, they, the, the ESV renders it, makes it sound a little bit like it's, a, it's an indicative verb, but it's actually a, a participle, like with an ing ending. So the ESV renders it, therefore, brothers, since we have, but more literally, we could say having, having, and I'm pointing this out because the passage is going to conclude with ing words, uh, not neglecting, but encouraging. So I think these are beginning and end statements. And, and this first one here in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, having boldness or confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And, and in context, in the book of Hebrews, you know how the author of Hebrews, there at the beginning of chapter 9, he has outlined the way that under the old covenant, the tabernacle was set up first with the holy place, with only, which only the priests could enter, and then the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest entered, and only on the Day of Atonement. And then he describes the way that the Lord Jesus has entered once for all into not a, a, a holy place made with hands, but into the true tent in heaven. And there he has offered not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood. In fact, here in in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, when it says, A body you have prepared for me, as the Lord Jesus describes himself becoming man. And then it goes on in verse 10 to describe the way that through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, he has accomplished our sanctification. So it's as though the, the Lord Jesus went into the heavenly holy place and then entered the heavenly holy of holies, offering himself his own body, his own blood as the sacrifice for our cleansing, as the blood by which we are purified. And if you believe that, you are given, you have boldness. Look at that phrase there. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, you can go into the very presence of God with confidence. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the holy of holies, the heavenly, the heavenly holy place and holy of holies by the new and living way. So the first thing that the Lord Jesus has done for us, verses 19 through 21, what he has done. The first thing that he has done for us is by means of his being crucified and then by means of his pleading his blood before the Father, he has given to us confidence. And as, as, you, as you seek to have your imagination transformed by the Bible, when you, when you contemplate what you are doing, when you call on the Lord in prayer, you should think of yourself as entering the very presence of God, confidently in the heavenly holy of holies. And you can do this because of Jesus. So this, this should transform your your understanding of what's happening when you pray. pray. You know, if, 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 you, if you drove in an automobile here this morning, you stuck a key in the ignition, or maybe you punched a button, and the engine came on. And I can't describe for you all that happens with the fuel and the various parts of that engine, but my brother-in-law, Clint, 
could tell you all about the process. And I suspect that if you heard him describe the, the various combustion that takes place and the, the engineering processes that have gone into making, making it where that thing doesn't blow up on you and making it where it's fuel efficient and all the rest, you would appreciate a lot more what happens when you turn the ignition and step on the accelerator. In the same way, the author of Hebrews is telling you how and why you can come before God. The author of Hebrews is explaining for you what is happening when you say, very simply, Lord, help. That's all you have to say. But magnificent things have been achieved for you to make that prayer heard. So the first thing that he's given us is boldness. The second thing that he has done is he has inaugurated the way. Look at what he goes on to say there in verse 20. So verse, verse 19, having confidence or boldness to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened. That's what he's done for us. He opened the way. If we didn't live on this side of the cross, this way would not be open to us. It's like what the author says there in verse 19, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 15, when he says in the middle of the verse, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Prior to that death, which puts an end to the old covenant and which inaugurates the new covenant, this way is not open. But the Lord Jesus has inaugurated the way. He has opened the, the gates. It's as though that, that great statement in Psalm 24, lift up your heads, you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. It's as though that moment has happened. And the king has come, and the people have cried out, who is this king of glory? And the answer has come, the Lord, strong and mighty. He is the king of glory. And the gates have been opened, and he has walked right in. And thereby, a new, never before accessible to human beings, and living, it stays open. A new and living way is open through the curtain. And this is the curtain that divides the holy place from the holy of holies. And I would just remind you of the way that the author has spoken of this. He, he has spoken in... Um, chapter 8, verse 2, of the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He, he speaks of, in, in 9.23, um, of the heavenly things. And then in 9.24, of the holy places um, uh, made with hands, which are copies of the true things which are in heaven itself. And so, in, in the same way that that curtain divides the earthly holy place from the earthly holy of holies, Christ has opened the way through the curtain in the heavenly holy of holies. And then he adds, the author of Hebrews adds there uh, at the end of verse 20, that is through his flesh. And, and I think that what he's saying is through the offering of his body. If you look back at chapter 10, verse 10, by that will we have been sacrificed sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, through the offering of his body, 9, 
uh, I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 20, through his flesh, that is the way through the curtain. And, and so I think what he's saying is, it is because Christ has been crucified for us. It is because Christ then entered into the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple, and by means of his body, which was sacrificed, by means of his blood, by means of his flesh in this sense, he has opened for us this new and living way through the curtain into the very presence of God. So what has he done for us? He has given us boldness, number one. Number two, he has inaugurated the way, a way that was previously closed. And num number three, he has become our great high priest. So here you, you can remember what um, chapter 2, verse 17 says. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Speaking of Jesus becoming incarnate. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then uh, chapter 7, when, when the author says in 7.26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And then 8.1. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. And then look at chapter 10, verse 21. And since we have a great, high, a great priest over the house of God. And that language, we have a great priest over the house of God, should also remind us of chapter 3, where the, where the author says in chapter 3, verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And he's, and he's spoken of in that context of how Moses was faithful in God's house. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We have a great priest over the house of God, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. So the three things that Christ has accomplished in Hebrews 10, 19 through 21 are, number one, he has given us confidence. Number two, he has opened the way. And then number three, he has become our Melchizedekian high priest, the high priest of the new covenant, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12, where there is a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law as well. The old covenant with its law is over. The priesthood of Aaron no longer serves for the people of God. Now there is a new covenant with the law of Christ and the Melchizedekian high priest, the Lord Jesus himself, serving the people of God. So I want to give you two points of application for this. Number one, I want to urge you to so contemplate these realities, to so meditate on these truths that the scriptures transform your imagination of what happens when you call on the Lord in prayer. If you will make it so that these words, this pattern of statements are written on the tablet of your heart. And the only way to make that happen is to repeat them to yourself over and over again. But if you cause the, the, the pathways in your mind to be so grooved by the repetition of these words in this order, they will be written on your heart and you will be in position to meditate on them. In fact, in the process of repeating them, them to yourself, you will be meditating upon them. 
and it will do its work. It's like the, the seed falling into the earth, and then in the mystery of the way that God built things to happen, the thing is dead, but it comes to life, and the plant grows. The, the, the soil is there, the water is there, the sun shines, and life happens. And that will happen to you and your contemplation of what happens when you call on the Lord in prayer will be transformed. And that will set you up to respond in the way that the author calls you to do. But before we go on to that response, here's your, your second application. Your first application is let the scriptures transform your imagination on what happens when you pray. The second point of application is, it's very simple, draw near to God. Draw near to God. And, and this is what the author goes on to say as he, as he calls us to respond here in verses 22 through 25. So what he's done in verses 19 through 22, 21, and now how we respond in verses 22 through 25. So the first thing he says here in verse 22 is, let us draw near. Let us draw near. What he's saying is, because he's the great high priest, because the way has been opened, because you have boldness, draw near. Draw near. It, it's really a restatement of what he said in 4.16. If you look back there at, at Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And that throne is where Christ is seated in the heavenly holy of holies at the right hand of the Father. So there, there's a bracketing function of 4.14 through 16 and 10.19 through 25. And those two passages, we're going to see as we walk through this, they've got a lot of common terminology and a lot of common imagery. And they bracket this whole central unit of how Christ is the Melchizedekian high priest in chapters 5 through 7. And then he's offered this greater sacrifice that, that is... The, the, the new covenant sacrifice in the middle of chapter 8 through uh, chapter 10 to this point. And at the center of that unit is that passage in 8, 1 through 6 where the author says, now the point is what we, in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. So it's like he's saying, 416, let us draw near with confidence. We have this high priest. Now 10, 22, let us draw near. So the author of Hebrews wants his audience to draw near to God. Why? Why do they need to draw near? Well, he's about to remind them of the dangers that they face. He, he's going to say in 1026, for if we go on sinning deliberately, he doesn't want them to sin deliberately. He wants them to draw near to the Lord. And then he's going to say in 10. 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And, and he, he's clear, there's more of that on the way. So when you're tempted or when you're afflicted or when you're persecuted, you should draw near. You should draw near. Let us, Hebrews 10, 22, draw near how? He's going he's gonna to tell us three ways that Christ enables us to draw near. The first is with a true heart. And this is awesome. This is, this is amazing. This is the solution to the problem of ourselves. What's the problem that we have with ourselves? The problem is Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart 
is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked who can know it and the result of that is you know they 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 send this letter to to G.K. Chesterton and a bunch of other intellectuals and they ask them all what is what what is wrong with the world and Chesterton response is me I am what's wrong with the world sincerely Gilbert Keith Chesterton and that's true of all of us what's wrong with the world we're what's wrong with the world our hearts are just like Jeremiah 17 9 but if the word comes and it's like seed in James 1 that is implanted and it causes you to experience the new birth and you're born again by this living and active word of God then you can actually be somebody who has a true heart you can be somebody who genuinely truly seeks God for his own sake not because of what he can do for you not because you want to somehow put him in your debt and, and constrain him to, to, to make a deal with you. Not for anything like that. Because he's worthy. Because it's right. Because you love him. And, you, and you're made to worship him. Because of Christ, you can draw near, Hebrews 10.22, with a true heart. And if this happens to you, if God takes out the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh... And, and makes it so that the, the Jesus' words in John 6, 63 are true in your case. Jesus said, the flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit who gives life. And my words are spirit and life. The words of Jesus come to you and they're life-giving, spirit-empowered. And, 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 and you're made alive. If that happens to you, then this will also be true, verse 22, in full assurance of faith. No doubt. Absolute confidence in Christ. Absolute confidence that because of who he is, because of what he's done, you can draw near. In full assurance of faith. Believing without question, without footnotes, without nuance, without throat clearing, no doubt about it. He is Lord. He is trustworthy. He is worthy, and every word he spoke will prove true. If you're born again, that's, that's it. That's where you are. True heart, full assurance of faith. And then, notice, this is really, I mean, your response is to draw near, but you're drawing near because of everything he's done for you, and it's like the author's returning now to what he's done for you. What's he done for you? He's given you a new heart. He's proven himself trustworthy. And then he goes on, the next thing there, with our hearts sprinkled clean. This is the imagery of um, the, what, the, what the high priest would do when he entered into uh, the Holy of Holies. He would take the, the, the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant. And, and this is already things, the, the, this has already been done to the altar outside. He's sprinkled the blood on the altar. And, and, and now the author of Hebrews is saying, our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And this is exactly what he said in chapter 9 when he said in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, I think this is that, you know, 
the, the new and living way through the veil, that is, his flesh. He offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If you know Christ, the, full, the new heart, the full assurance of faith makes it so that your heart is sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Your guilt is washed away. And it is true of you what Romans 8.1 says. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let us draw near, Hebrews 10.22, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Um, some people see here an allusion to baptism. I'm inclined to think this is not an allusion to baptism, but rather it's more of that, that old covenant imagery. And I think it's old covenant imagery that is stemming from Ezekiel 36, where as the Lord describes what he's going to do for his people, when he gives them a new heart, he says there in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And that, that sprinkling with clean water communicates that they are now sanctified. And then I think that same imagery shows up in John 3 when the Lord Jesus says, unless one is born of water and spirit. And again, I don't think this is baptism. I think it is the, the cleansing that comes with regeneration. And that cleansing that comes with regeneration is also spoken of by Paul in Titus 3.5 when he says, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So I don't think that all the, those references to water and washing, I don't think that's baptism. I think it's what happens when you get born again. So I think this, this um, our bodies washed with pure water here, the washing of our bodies with pure water is, is also connected to what happens when someone is born again. All of that is symbolized when we are buried with Christ in baptism and then rise to walk in newness of life. But I think the, the cleansing actually happens at the point of faith, when the heart is made new, when the eyes are opened, and, and when the trust begins. So we draw near in those three ways, with a true heart, with heart sprinkled clean, and with bodies washed with pure water. The second thing he calls us to do. So the first thing he calls us to, to do is draw near. The second thing, and draw near to God, I think, in prayer and, and with your, your mind revolutionized so that you understand that you are actually going before the living God with the, with the son seated at the right hand, on the throne, in the heavenly holy of holies. And then secondly, there in verse 23, he writes, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And, and we've talked as we've gone through Hebrews about how the, the suffering that these folks are facing and uh, the difficulties that they are enduring could be causing some of them to be tempted to leave Christianity to avoid the reproach of Christ. You know, he's going to say over in chapter 13, in verse 12, Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Um, verse 13, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So when you identify with Christ, 
you take on the reproach of Christ. And uh, it seems that some in the audience are tempted to abandon the reproach of Christ, go back to Judaism, and he's saying, no, don't do that. Hold fast the confession. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Um, Let me remind you of the way that in chapter 3, the author writes in verse 1, that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so in 3.6, he says, we are his house, we are his living temple of the Holy Spirit, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And then in 4.14, here's another one of those points of contact between 4.14 through 16 and 10.19 through 25, 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What's he talking about? He's talking about maintaining the gospel is what he's talking about. He's talking about being clear-sighted and and tough-minded and insistent on the Christian gospel. He's talking about being able to discern between the gospel, the true gospel, and doctrines of demons. He's talking about being able to tell the difference between a message that that gives people life, that builds people up, that liberates them to feel joy and freedom, and a message that steals, kills, and destroys and makes them only envious and only cynical and, and only angry at other people. So if you discern that a message is going that way, you know you're dealing with a doctrine of demons. If you discern the the true gospel, you will be able to spot the doctrines of demons, which the false teachers are going to peddle. And those doctrines are enslaving. In those doctrines of demons, there is no forgiveness. There is no satisfaction of wrath. There is no reconciliation. It is only slavery forever. You will always, you will always have more reparations to make if you embrace the doctrines of demons or if you are subjected to the doctrines of demons. And the gospel is not like that. The gospel results in forgiveness. The gospel produces peace and reconciliation and joy and mutual praise. The gospel is freeing where the doctrines of demons are enslaving. So we want to hold fast the gospel, and the author gives us one reason for holding fast the gospel. You can see it there in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And the logic is simple, isn't it? He's faithful. He made the promise. He'll keep his word. He's faithful. He made the promise. He'll keep his word. We should be people of unassailable confidence in God. God has caused every one of his words to prove true. And and so whatever happens, we should not be marked by anxiety. We should be marked by this joyful confidence in God. Yesterday I was listening to uh, an Uncommon Knowledge podcast with Peter Robinson, and I can't pronounce the, the guy's name that he was interviewing But the guy was talking about the American ideals that are under attack in our society. And he was invited to comment on the fact that that like 23% 
of people 30 and under, I may have the number slightly wrong, but it's something like this, are patriotic. Patriotic. Less than one in four people under 30 feel patriotic, patriotic about the country. And, and, and Peter Robinson said, what do you say to these young people? And, and he said, I say to them, it's okay. You can hate on America. Our society allows for that. Let me share for you, with you some of the reasons I'm happy to live here. Let me share with you some of the reasons that I'm grateful for the American ideals that you're trying to overthrow. And the guy just exuded this joyful, optimistic confidence. And I thought to myself, if he can be that way about American ideals, how much more should we be joyfully, optimistically confident about the word of the living God, which cannot be broken? which will bear its fruit, which will not return to him void. We should be marked by a joyful, confident optimism because he who promised is faithful. And then finally, the third way that the author urges us to respond, verse 20, verses 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Do you see what the author is telling you to do? Think about how you can provoke other Christians to be more loving and to do more good things. We should, we should give thought to this. We should exercise mental energy in this direction. How can I provoke other believers to love and good works? And then the author is going to tell us, you know, one of these not this but that ways of pursuing this. And, and the strategy is really simple. Look at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Not doing this, but doing this. So what's the first step he tells you in, in considering how you can encourage others, provoke them to love and good works? Answer, show up. Show up. Now, I think... If, you, if you've done your membership here, interview with me here at Kenwood, you heard me say this. I think the author is assuming, when he says not neglecting to meet together, he's assuming that his audience is going to understand that he's referring to the gathering of believers on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, to hear the word and to sing the praise of the risen king. So I think the author is assuming, when he says not neglecting to meet together, this, you know, Sunday worship, however you want to describe it. Lord's Day, gathering of believers uh, to, to hear the word, to offer our prayers, to sing his praise together. So how, how, can we con how can we consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds? Number one thing you can do, come to church. And, and I think this takes on the force of a command. So the, the let us consider is a command. And the not neglecting is a participial outworking of how you carry out that command. And this is why, here at Kenwood, if someone persists in unrepentant non-attendance, and they're a member of this church, we will call them to repentance for not coming to church. And if they, if they go on persisting in unrepentant non-attendance, we will eventually conclude, you're not acting like a believer. And, and we'll go through the steps of church discipline, and we will remove them from church membership because of what this verse teaches, what these verses, uh, verses 24 and 25, teach. So 
as you consider how you can stir one another up to love and good deeds, I would encourage you to just resolve in your mind, if it is possible for me to be here, I'm going to be here. I mean, if, if um, Desmond Doss, don't you love that phrase in that citation? With magnificent fortitude. If he can take a rifle stock and bind up a compound fracture in his arm and then crawl 300 yards, most Sundays we can get here, right? Most Sundays you can get here. You can do it. No problem. And if you're a believer, you'll want to. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Now, this is wonderful because there are so many things that we're actually, some of us, doing that are not what this says. And then there are a bunch of things that the Bible tells us to do that are not what this says. Okay, so in other words, there's some bad things that you shouldn't be doing, that you're probably doing, I'm probably doing sometimes, and we need to quit it. And then there's some good things that, that there are occasions in which we should do these things. But the main thing the author says here is encouraging one another. So I just want to run through these. The author does not say, consider how to criticize. Nope. Consider how to gossip. Nope. Consider how to slander. Nope. Consider how to mock. Uh-uh. Nuh-uh. Never. Consider how to make them laugh. Well, that can be encouraging, so maybe, you know, if it's encouraging, consider how to tear somebody else down. No, no, none of that. And, and then there, so those are the bad things. Then, then there are good things that the Bible calls us to do. Things like admonish one another, instruct one another, and, and correct one another. And sometimes, some of us are in the habit of qualifying statements made by one of, you know, I've always, some people are always trying to nuance what somebody else says. They've always got a corrective point. They've always got a little, a little tweak that they want to add. That's not what the author calls us to here. Consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting, but encouraging, encouraging. So what this author, the way that this author calls, calls us to respond is to encourage one another. And, and I would just encourage us all to try to become people who are marked by encouragement. We want to be marked by noticing good things that other people do and pointing them out. Spotting evidence of God's grace. Seeing believing faith that results in action. Noticing that and then commending it. And, and, and then I think encouraging also looks like you can do this. You can persevere. You can hang on. He's faithful. He's worthy. You can do it. And then the last reason for this is, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day is coming. Uh, this reminds me of uh, chapter 3, where the author says in 3.13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As, as long as it is called today, because the day is coming. I think this passage here, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, not only links up with 4, 14 through 16, surrounding that central unit, but it also links up with chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. 
And if you look at that passage, he starts out saying in 1218, you've not come to what may be touched. And he's going to start talking about Mount Sinai. And then he, he gets down to verse 22 and he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal array. So he's talking about the great day when we will enter the heavenly city. As I thought about how to stir you up to love and good deeds, try to provoke you, I imagine to myself that maybe someday there will be medals of honor given on that great day. And I, kind of in the spirit of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, you know, here's a paltry attempt at a commendation, at a, a citation with the headline, Heaven's Highest Accolade Granted to Christian on the Completion of Her Earthly Sojourn. In the course of her career, she held the posts of Christian girl in an unbelieving household. Christian single, chased at a debauched high school. Christian single, faithful and chased at enemy indoctrination center referred to as a university. Faithful and submissive Christian wife in enemy occupied territory. Christian wife and mother in spite of the prevalence of demonic doctrine. Housewife, homeschooling mother, empty nest servant of the Lord and the church, widow, full of faith and good works. For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the expense of her life above and beyond the call of duty, while not serving in a particular battle or war, but her whole life. In spite of the unbelieving example of her own parents, and with full awareness that the world would not honor her for doing so, she discerned the truth of the gospel, believed the trustworthy Christ, crucified her own sinful flesh, took up the shield of faith, embraced the reproach of Christ, and became a Christian. Though the enemy marshaled the full force of the society's educational apparatus against the knowledge of God as creator and redeemer, she held fast to him. Believing the word of God, though Satan's lies came at her like a hail of bullets. With complete disregard for her own safety and reputation, she maintained her own faith while seeking to help others live as she sought to encourage those wounded by the liar to find life in repentance and faith. She rejected the spirit of the age and stood against Satan and all the forces of hell to maintain the gospel, advance its saving message, and fulfill the great commission given by the captain of the host. Perhaps her most heroic achievement was a stalwart stance in defiance of the overwhelming pervasiveness of that great doctrine of demons, Marxism, with its particular feminist attack on marriage, motherhood, and most fiercely, submission to her husband. The culture in which she lived could be likened to the rocks below Niagara Falls and Marxist feminism inundated her experience like the millions of gallons of water rushing over those falls, crashing on those rocks below. And despite all temptations to envy, rebellion, cynicism, subversion, and revolution, she was content 
obedient, sincere, submissive, and honored the Lord by honoring her husband. And she stayed so. In a world of sensual, sensual distractions, she delighted herself in the Bible. Though her flesh cried out to her to indulge in selfishness, she followed in the footsteps of her master. Though the devil did his best to accuse, deceive, steal, steal kill, and destroy, she trusted, believed, gave, had children, and built a family. In the midst of all her responsibilities as a wife and mother, she somehow found time to serve the church, faithfully praying, teaching younger women and children, making meals for those in need, counseling, growing in her own knowledge of the scriptures and in Christ's likeness, and helping others do the same. Surrounded by curses, she sang praise. In a time of gossip, she held her tongue. With occasion to slander, she shut her mouth, choosing rather to tell of God's faithfulness, to encourage, build up, and in everything, she strove against the wicked by living out the law. She feared the Lord, loved her husband and children, laid down her life, and overcame the world. She gave her life for Christ. Her tenacious de devotion to duty, valorous action in the raging battle, and unshakable faith in the triune God were in keeping with the highest traditions of the church and reflect eternal credit on herself and her Lord. She belongs to the ranks of those of whom the world is not worthy. When asked for comment on her reception of the highest accolades heaven bestows, she replied with words from 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. It was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, our great high priest, who has given us boldness, who has opened the new and living way. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to draw near, hold fast, and consider. Lord, we pray that as we draw near to you, we would also draw near to one another. That the boldness that enables us to enter would also make us those who do not neglect gathering together but those who encourage one another as the day approaches. We pray all this for Christ's sake.